0: Ninth annual Question and Answer Sunday. How many of you have been at a Q&A Sunday before? Okay, how many of you, first time ever at a Q&A Sunday? Oh, I'm excited for you. So essentially, uh, if you notice in your program, the notes where we normally have like sermon notes and Bible passages, there are zero because I have prepared exactly zero words to say to you today. How this is going to work is you get to ask questions and in a second, Jonathan, our worship director, is going to join me on stage and we are going to try to answer as many of them as we can right here. Uh, Here's how the process works. Uh, You can see in your program or behind me there's a QR code. Uh, This is the one service where I'm not going to be mad if you have your phone with you the whole time. Uh, Scan that code. Uh, If it asks for uh, a little code to enter in, it's 42578. If you're watching at home, you can do the exact same thing. It's going to pull up a page where you can just type in a question. So any question you want to ask, you can ask it. And then afterwards, you're going to be able to see First, actually, it's going to go to Pastor Michael so he can approve it. So if one of you want to make fun of me or ask, why are you the way that you are, Pastor Mike? Pastor Michael, would you reject a question like that? (laughs) I should have clarified. So he's going to approve it. It's going to pop up on that app. And then here's something really cool you can do. You can look at other people's questions, and if they're really interesting to you, you can upvote them. All right, so what Jonathan is going to see up here on stage is not just a list of questions, but the questions that are most interesting to you as a group cover as many of them as we can in two separate chunks. So anytime during the service while we're singing songs, while I'm answering a question, if something pops into your mind, ask it. Uh, We're going to tackle as many as we can. And then my promise to you is that sometime in the next few months, I'm going to try to film a video for the questions that I'm not able to get to. So because we're limited today, you probably don't have until three o'clock this afternoon. uh, We're going to have to say amen. But I'm going to keep all of your questions and try to make a video response to as many as I can within the next few weeks or months. So, that sound clear? You can listen, take notes, engage, scan the QR code, send in a question. Um, Here's the big thing I should say, though, before we launch in. Uh, There are two things that I don't want to happen today, and one big thing that I do. There are two reasons that we don't do Q&A Sunday. Reason number one is not so that you can stump me. All right. There's a lot of like 14-year-old boys who love, I'm going to ask Pastor Mike what Ezekiel chapter 31 verse two says, and he's not going to know." You're right. All right, so the point is not to ask some you know, quirky, crazy question just to stump the pastor. The point is so that you can ask things you've always wondered about God or church or religion or faith. So if you've had a question about God or about heaven or hell or Gender, sexuality, if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or non-denominational and you wonder about this or, or that, why the differences? Why do some Christians do this? Why did I grow up like this? But well, we don't do this here at our church. You know, I've always wondered about this, or my friend says this, or my, my dad says this about God. If there's any like real question, if it was just you and me and a cup of coffee you'd want to ask, this is the moment that you can ask it. Right, my goal is not to impress you by just rattling off Bible passages to prove how much I've studied the Word of God uh, the goal is that you can ask a question, I can grab the good book, and hopefully give you a good answer from God. Um, that's a little bit of your homework, too. You've got to keep me accountable. Pastors talk a lot. Some people are persuaded by their words, but your job is to believe almost nothing that I say until I grab this book. All right? Answers aren't just my opinion, not just our church position. If I can't tell you a chapter and a verse where my answer is coming from, discard it, cross it out, it's useless. It's human opinion. I want your questions to be answered by the Word of God itself. Sound good? All right. Use your phones, but turn off the ringer, please. <laughs> As I was meditating this morning, preparing my heart and praying for Q&A Sunday, I was reading these words from 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. All Scripture, the whole Bible, is God-breathed. It comes from Inside of God from his heart, this whole book. And all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's you, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties. Of your ministry. Now, Jonathan, that's our our goal today. Preach the word in season, out of season. It's useful. We need it. Not everyone likes it. Some people will turn their ears away from it. But our job today is to hear the questions of God's people and to give them God's answers from God's word. So, you ready for question number one?
1: I am. And we already have a number of great questions coming in. And just a reminder that you can upvote questions. And I'm already seeing a few that have been upvoted. uh, a lot. So we're going to start off with one of those right near the top that has been upvoted by a number of people. And the question is this, if a child passes away who was never baptized, how does God deal with their
0: souls? That's going to be the first question we tackle. You know,
1: (laughs) I thought we'd start it off on a little bit of a light note and then get the heavier questions later. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. that's a really... Half of answering a question is knowing the person who asked the question, right? So the, I'm guessing the challenging part of this is not that, you know, what's the technical Bible answer? It probably comes from someone who is in that situation. You, know, you have a child, the child is sick, passes away. You, you want to raise that child to be baptized, to know the Word of God, to read Bible stories, but then maybe expectedly, maybe not, you lose the child. And what does God say about that? Um, there's a couple of just biblical things that we can say for sure. We know that from the earliest moments of our existence, we have the need to be saved by Jesus. If any of you are parents, you know, you don't have to wait until they're 13 for kids to do bad things. You don't even have to teach them to do bad things. The Bible says in Psalm 51, verse 5, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So we do know that kids don't, I mean, kids look innocent and beautiful, but give them a bit, right? They'll prove that they are, you know, not just good, but there's a lot of sinfulness in their heart. And so that's a problem we need to remedy. God says children are sinful, humans are sinful, they need to be forgiven. And the second thing we learned is that God has a way for them to be forgiven. Some Christians call this the means of grace. It's like the means or the ways that God connects us to the forgiveness that we need through the Bible, through baptism. And so whenever a parent has a child, like the, the urgent message that God says is this child has a spiritual need that needs to be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Give this child the word. Give this child the gift of baptism. I think a passage is like uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Baptism saves you by connecting you to the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're a parent, you know, sometimes we, like, well, I want all the family to be in town, and I just want it to be this memorable date for us. Like, no. No, when you have a kid, like the urgency is on to connect the sinful child to the only Savior from sin. All right, so two things that we know for sure from the Bible. Children are sinful, Psalm 51.5. Jesus is the forgiveness for every kind of sin, for every single age. But that wasn't your question, was it? The question is what happens if, you know, God forbid something happens before that moment. Um, there's this awesome passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Believe it or not, I just read from verse 16. How about verse 15? Paul says, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Baptism is one of the ways that God can wash away the sins of a person, of a precious soul, but it's not the only way. And so the Holy Spirit, as parents are praying, And talking about Jesus and talking about his love. This passage says from infancy, not from kindergarten, but from infancy, somehow the Holy Spirit is working through the word of God to make even little ones wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So I would give comfort to a parent that John the Baptist leapt in the womb of his mother when he heard Mary's voice in Luke chapter 1 and God can do great things that we can't see through the power of his word and the power of the Spirit. And if, God forbid, that moment comes, like where we don't have a lot of chance to do that, I mean, all we can do as Christian parents is to entrust that child into the hands of a God who always does what is right and never does what's wrong. So, my answer is, from day one, let's give our kids as much of Jesus as we can in the Word and in baptism, and if something happens, we entrust that God, that child, into the hands of a God who never makes mistakes.
2: Good. Very good.
1: No, that's a that's a, a very tough. It's a tough question emotionally for a lot of feeling, people.
0: I'm feeling I'm feeling for your wife right now after she yeah. pours her heart out to you and you say good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> many many yes. prayers to yes.
1: Mrs. Aaron. Favorite. <laughs> us, us musicians are a special breed of people. Yeah, you yes, you really you are. are. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right, here's a, a question that I think is very foundational in the Christian faith and something that um, I think people are wondering is. Uh, our religion is really founded, our Christian faith is really founded on the fact that God is a triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Yep. If someone is not fully on board with that teaching or doesn't understand that or doesn't truly believe that, are they
0: still a Christian? Mm. So you're asking, can you be a Christian without believing in the Trinity? Yes. Um, my answer, I think, would be no. If you believe in, like, God the Creator, but don't believe that Jesus is divine, how could you be saved, right? If Jesus was just a guy or a religious founder who died 2,000 years ago on a cross, how could that possibly help you? He would just be another person. He has to be God for his death on the cross to count as the ultimate payment for your sin. So, you know, we might grow in our understanding of how the Trinity works, it's, you know, great mystery that doesn't fit neatly into the human brain, but I would say, you know, if someone thinks that Jesus is less than divine, it's impossible for them to be saved. I mean, just think of the Pharisees in the New Testament. They believed in God, but they didn't believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. And Jesus said to them frequently, if you don't have me, then you don't have the Father. So there's a lot of religions that believe in some higher power, some God, but the Christian religion, the faith that we believe saves us and gets us to heaven, is dependent on that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as one God, carried out the plan of our salvation. And I'm trying to think of a Bible passage that would prove that. Galatians chapter 3 says that unless Jesus came to take our curse as the very Son of God then none of us could be saved. Um, I think the passage says, cursed is anyone who's dependent on doing the works of the law, but only Jesus can take that curse away by being hung on a tree. So, yeah, I would say knowing the Trinity, knowing who Jesus is, is a necessary part of being a Christian, making it to heaven, and being saved. Oh, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you just have some belief in God as creator, but not Jesus as savior, you, you can't possibly get to him. Was that also good? I think or I'm was, not worried yes, yes. about... <laughs> I'll give you this thumb up this time. Great job, Pastor Mike. We, I should tell you, we also allowed Jonathan to be up here to, to, to push back a little bit. So if I dodge a question or don't exactly get to the heart of a question or he thinks of something as a follow-up to the question, he's allowed to do that too.
1: That's, I felt a pretty, pretty solid no, basically, that the triune God is very important yeah. In in being a, a believer in, in the Christian faith, that it's yeah. foundational.
0: Yeah, the early it's... Christians in the centuries after Jesus came up with different statements of faith called creeds. Maybe you've heard of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. When the early Christians wrestled with that and some false teachers said, No, the Holy Spirit isn't God or Jesus isn't God, they wrote statements of faith and said, If if you don't if you don't believe in this God, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. And without the God of the Bible, you have no Savior. So, yeah, I, would, I think I'd stand by that. You need to have the Trinity to be a Christian and to be saved. Okay.
1: Uh, here's, I think, one that really can spark a nerve for a lot of Christians, especially when, in regards to their sins. Um, it's been upvoted a number of times. Why can't I feel sorry for sins that I happily commit? If I don't repent, are they still forgiven, even though I would do it all over again?
0: Ooh. Yeah, that's a great question. And who, do any of you feel as bad as you should for every sin you commit? And you're impatient with a grouchy person at work. Do you just break down crying, oh, I've, I've sinned so deeply against God? Difficult answer to your question, Jonathan, because when it comes to, like, the strength of our faith or the strength of our repentance, because of sin, none of us is perfect, Does anyone believe as much as they should? No. Does anyone feel as bad as they should about their sin? No. I think the Bible would make a distinction when it comes to, can you commit a sin, know it's a sin, and if you go back and do it all over, still say yes to that sin. I think if a person could say, yes, I know I did it, I'm happy I did it, I don't care what God says about it, I would have grave concerns about a person's faith like that. Right? If you claim that you love God, how could you like knowingly slap him in the face with your sin and just smile and say, I wish I could do that again? And the answer is no, that, that's not faith. So book of Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this. It says in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Sometimes people call this living in sin or living an unrepentant life. Right, this isn't for those of you who are struggling. Like you just all, you're just you impatient all the time. You look at pornography and you hate it. Like I'm not talking about struggling with sin or even constantly struggling with sin. This passage is talking about someone who deliberately does it. I intended to. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm proud I did it. I would do it all over again. If you say that, it is impossible that the love of God exists in your heart. You can call yourself whatever you want. Religious, spiritual, Christian, you are not. And the Bible says it's time to repent before you're consumed by the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So you take the forgiveness of Jesus seriously, take what Jesus says about sin seriously too. It's bad. It, it's actually so bad that it put him on the cross to pay for it. So don't minimize that. See sin for what it is. Repent of it, and then run to him for all the forgiveness that you need. It makes you think. Um, so when I was in grad school studying to become a pastor, I uh, I drove Zamboni at an ice rink, like the coolest job a human could ever have <laughs> besides being a pastor. And uh, there was this young guy. He was the goalie on the high school hockey team, and uh, I knew he was kind of religious and he went to church sometimes. And he came up to me, uh, he was Catholic, I think, and he said, um, hey, Mike, do you do confession? And I said, well, like, yeah. Like, do people come to me and talk about their sins and confess? And I said, yeah, sure. You want to talk about something? He's like, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so prom is coming up this Friday? Okay. Well, you know, Mike, it's, it's prom. Okay. Yeah, so I was just wondering if I could confess to you before I do what I'm about to do at prom. (laughs) I said, no, 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 no. Confession, repentance, is not just a box you check, okay, I'm officially sorry, God. It's like something you grieve. Like, God loves me. God doesn't love this, but I did this. And the more we think about that, the the more it's like, man, God has been so good to me. He's loved me. He's forgiven me. He sent his son for me, and I'm choosing something that God doesn't like. Like that's the sorrow of repentance and it prevents a Christian from deliberately keeping on doing things that God does not like.
1: So on that, Pastor Mike, if I think what maybe some people might be feeling from this question is they understand they the the, the extremes. Yep. That, you know, you can be burdened by so much guilt. Yep. Or you could just be, oh, I should be, but I'm not. Whatever. That middle space. Yep. I know I should feel guilty about this more, but I can't. I'm not. And that can be maybe a scary place for some people. What are some maybe practical tips or what are some things you would say to that person to maybe get them to a place where maybe you want them to be?
0: Yep. Yeah, there's no magic Bible bullet to, like, make yourself feel as bad as you should when you sin. I think for me, what does it? Two things. is just looking intently at the goodness of God. If you sin against someone who's kind of a jerk to you, you probably don't feel that bad about it. They had it coming. You started it. You said it first. But if someone is entirely good and kind and beautiful to you and you you do something bad, I think that really grieves you. Like, wow, what's wrong with me that someone could be so good to me and I could be so bad in return? So I, I think it's not just like realizing, oh, the Bible officially says this is wrong. I think it's realizing that the Bible comes from a God who has been so good to me since day one and once he's a big, beautiful God in my heart, to sin against him is just a deep kind of grievous error. So that's where I think the strength of sorrow and repentance comes from.
1: Making God big in your yeah. life and your heart.
0: For sure, yeah. Good.
1: Um, a number of people are quest- or questioning kind of more of a practical thing. If we look up on our cross, there are four letters, I-N-R-I. Mm. Inri, um, what does it mean? That's basically what everyone's asking. Why do we have four letters up there and what do they mean?
0: Outri didn't fit. So we... That was the worst joke I've ever told (laughs) on the (laughs) stage. Yeah, so when Jesus was crucified, the Bible says uh, above his head was the charge that Pontius Pilate, the governor, put. Like, here's why this guy's dying on a cross. And it was written in Latin. I think it was written in Greek and uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. Forgive me for not knowing that. And the charge was, in Latin... Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judaorum, I N R I. Jesus Nazarenus, Jesus of Nazareth, Rex, King, Judaorum of the Jews. So, because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, that was considered an assault against Caesar, who was the king of the Roman Empire. That was the charge that they stuck him on the cross. So, in Rai, it's just this ironic thing where he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He was. They killed him for it, and then he proved he was the king of kings by rising from the dead.
1: That's great. Looking up there, I love how the, the, the crown of thorns is right underneath that sign, too, to remind us Yeah. all those things.
0: Yeah, what king would be pierced for our transgressions, but Jesus did.
1: Here's a, maybe a more practical question about our church, and I did not submit this because it's worship-related. Oh, just wanted to let you know. All right. I also did not upvote it 25 times to make sure it got answered. <laughs> <laughs> what do we say to people when there are disagreements about worship style? So maybe they come from a church where you're supposed to dress up in a nice suit, yep, um, and and appear in a respectful manner. Or the music doesn't have a loud drum set. Or what do we say uh, to people who think that a certain worship style brings off a disrespect towards God? Stop it. <laughs> Next question. All right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is there any hint in all of the scriptures? that when Peter went to worship God or the early Christians gathered, they put on their best robes and polished their sandals? There is none. All right? so human traditions about how we dress or what kind of music we have, how long a church service would be. You know, would, would Christians from Africa, who sometimes walk from their villages and spend three to four hours worshiping God, would they judge us for like, you You sang four songs and called that church? And we'd be like, well, yeah. That's, <laughs> it's our tradition, it's custom, it's culture, but does the Bible give us any right to judge each other on our man-made traditions? Can I go to a church where the pastor's wearing a robe? I used to wear a robe at my last church, by the way, and say, you're too formal. You think you're above everyone else? No, it's a tradition that tries to communicate, hey, we love God, we give him our first and our best if you dress casually in jeans to say is god an approachable god am i a sinner just like you so i'm not going to wear some fancy outfit but sure take it or leave it but the bible says let's not add or subtract anything from the word of god so if you're judging anyone for something they do that's not biblical like that's a problem that's adding rules that the bible says are man-made and not biblical so preach a 50-minute sermon or a 50-minute sermon Bang on the drum kit, play an organ, wear a robe, not. Jesus doesn't care. Believe the things he says. Behave in the way he wants you to behave. You'll have plenty to do without figuring out what kind of instrument other Christians are using to worship their Savior. I need to prove that with a Bible passage. Um, Jesus said somewhere. (laughs) Jeans are okay. (laughs) Jeans are okay. It's it's in the Greek. Um, You know, he warned the Pharisees, your teachings are but rules made up by men. All right, so be really careful. If you're gonna, we should judge each other by our behavior and our beliefs, but only if it's biblical. The word of God is truth. So you might have a preference. That's okay. You might connect in a certain way, whether it's traditional hymns or modern praise songs. That's okay. As long as you're worshiping Jesus, that's what the Bible cares about. Uh, that's Matthew 15, I think. Memory serves
1: Uh, here's a good question. Actually, I think Pastor Michael is summarizing a few of the questions, which really should have been the first question asked because you talked about how we need our answers from God's word. So let's go back to there. How can we trust that those words on those pages are absolute truth? Mm-hmm. Um, people make the argument, the Bible's been translated. How do we know that it hasn't been changed? Yep. There's so many different versions. How do we know which one they seem to contradict? Yep where do we, how do we lay that foundation for people?
2: Mm,
0: you just asked like seven questions. Can you answer all of them together at one yes. time? Yes, <laughs> in, less, in less than a minute. Yeah, that's great, right? The more you get to know people from different cultures and backgrounds, the more you realize there's lots of different books that claim to be holy. The Muslims have the Quran, the Christians have their Bible, Buddhists have their own sacred writings, Hindus have the same, there's the Book of Mormon, there's You know, so how do we know that like this book, the Bible, is the one that we should believe? Here's my three-part answer. The prophets, the apostles, and Jesus. So if someone asked me, why do you believe this book? Why do you preach about it? Why do you want everyone to read it? I'd say the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus. The prophets in the Old Testament predicted in hundreds of different ways things that came true long after they wrote. Right, so there's predictions about Jesus would be born at this time, in this place. Um, in Bethlehem, Micah 5, verse 2, he'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Psalm 22 said he would be crucified before crucifixion was even invented. Like the empire where it would happen, Jesus would be raised in Galilee. He would rise from the dead, that's Psalm 16. There are like, read Isaiah 53 in its entirety. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. What? They even knew, like, how rich the guy was whose tomb Jesus laid in. So there's tons of predictions that all came true in Jesus. And it proves, like, who who could make that up? Who could possibly know that hundreds of years before it happened? That must prove that the Old Testament comes from a God who knows all things. Second, the apostles. Uh, The apostles in the first century would have known whether or not Jesus was the real deal, and they were willing to die for their faith. Right, so imagine this. Like someone arrests you for being a Christian and let's say you made up the story about Jesus. Yeah, he, was, he said he was God and he rose from the dead and he's running heaven right now. And then they stretch you out to like flog you and rip the flesh off of your back before nailing you to a cross where you slowly suffocate and die. Would you hold on to a lie if you knew it was a lie? Would you make up a story that would cost you your wealth, your health, and your very life? Would you be tortured for something you made up? And the answer is no. The apostles were not like seventh generation Christians who were just taking it by faith. They knew what Jesus said and did and yet they were willing to die for their faith. They suffered for it. Read the book of Acts and you'll find the proof. So the prophets, their prophecies, the apostles and their suffering. And finally, my favorite, the message of Jesus. Um, Every other religion in the world uh, operates by a single system. Do enough good things and you'll have good things happen to you in the life to come. Fix your karma, do enough good things, balance the scales, do enough good things, make up the good and the bad, do enough good things. Jesus came along and he preached something so different, you had to wonder, like, where did this come from if no one else came up with this? And what Jesus came up with is, I'll do all the good things you need so that a person like you who's done bad things can be rescued and saved. It's the uniqueness of the gospel John three verse 16, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So someone pushed me, like, why believe the Bible? Here's my three- part answer. The apostles, the prophets, and the message of Jesus himself.:
1: I think maybe a little bit of this question. I know I asked seven questions at one time, but you did, yeah. How do we know that Isaiah wasn't altered later after yeah. Jesus came? Yep. So that it did all fit. Yep. How do we know that what Isaiah wrote before Christ is actually actually what he wrote? Yes. Yeah. I love this.
0: Uh, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before? Yeah. So um, they found in this cave right next to the Dead Sea, which is kind of south of Jerusalem. I think back in the uh, early mid 1900s, the shepherd found these like uh, big kind of canisters, jars inside was almost an entire copy, this massive scroll of the book of Isaiah. The copy was dated to before the time that Jesus came. So all those prophecies I mentioned, Isaiah 7, especially Isaiah 53, about the coming, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we know for a fact, we literally have the copy, you can see it in Jerusalem now, of a scroll that says all of those things before Jesus was even born. So the claim that people took the Old Testament, Jesus came, they edited a bunch of parts so that it would kind of fit the story of Jesus, it it just doesn't work historically. Um, You can Google it. Just look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. An amazing find. I'm so grateful that goat climbed into that cave and that shepherd threw a rock and it shattered and he investigated and we found an amazing answer to that question. The Bible has not been altered or changed. In fact, when they found that copy of Isaiah, I think it predated the oldest copy known to that point by a thousand years. And when they compared the two copies, they were 99% identical. So it's proof that Christians who believe the Bible is the word of God haven't been changing it, altering it, erasing it, making it you know, edited for their culture. They've been faithfully passing it on from year to year and copy to copy.
1: Good. Thank you for answering two of my seven questions. Appreciate you, that. Two out of seven. Not bad. Oh uh, the the struggle is there's so many good questions coming in and we're already at the end of our first break. So No,
0: we're not. Let's keep going. Let's keep going?
1: Yeah. Well, I was gonna ask a a quick hitter. Uh a combination of two questions. Uh that's for our church. What does nine two two stand for? Yep. And what do what do the the U first that our volunteers wear on our T shirts? Yes. What does that stand for? So Yep. So
0: 922 Ministries, that's like the umbrella of our church campuses, St. Peter and the core. It comes from a Bible passage, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. And that's the passage that says, the Apostle Paul is speaking about his philosophy of ministry. And he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So Paul then say, well, this is my style. I'm a traditional guy or I'm a progressive guy. He said, no. If there's anything I can change about myself to reach someone who doesn't know Jesus, he says, I'm willing to change. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. So you should know this. The philosophy of our church is that as soon as you become a Christian and get connected here, it is no longer about you. It's about the people that you know and love that don't have this connection to the saving message of Jesus. So, get this, is is like your grandma not connected to church? Then whatever you can do to reach her, if it means going face-to-face to visit her or writing her a letter because she's not on TikTok or Instagram, you change what you do to reach her. Right? Are you a parent who just doesn't get all this social media stuff, but your nephew or your niece has no connection to Jesus and you, you don't see them enough. Then what you should do is do whatever you can to connect with them. The Apostle Paul says, "It doesn't matter my culture, it doesn't matter my preferences. I become all possible things, so that by all possible means I might save some." So, philosophy of our church, which we express in those two words on our T-shirt, is not me first. Welcome to the church that makes it all about me. Is you first. How can I serve you? Um, to be honest, that's that's difficult for all of us. Sometimes I just want to come to church and do my thing instead of introducing myself to people I don't know. It's hard to put other people first. Sometimes I want to sit on the end of the row so I can have an easy exit to the bathroom or a coffee instead of moving in so someone has a better seat. Sometimes I want to take the parking spot closest to the door instead of parking three blocks away. Let the guests do that. I'm a member of this church. I give offerings. No, no, no. 922 says, it's not about me. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't make it about himself. He came to serve. And so as followers of Jesus who have received his love, that's our heart too. How can we serve people, show them the love of God, and bring them closer to their Savior?
1: Thank you. It, 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 we wear those shirts all the time, and they're everywhere. And yeah. I've often wondered, someone walks in like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, why, why are we wearing shirts that just have two random words on it? But yeah. yeah, there's a meaning for it. There's a reason for it. Indeed. Okay, let's take one more question. Yes, one more. Um... I'm assuming this person has a connection to someone in the military, um, but their question is, um, is it okay for a soldier to kill someone in battle? Mm. You know, and that can apply to, I think, a police officer as well in a certain situation. Yep. Um, When I lived in Phoenix for a number of years, um, crime was a very real thing we had to deal with. We had an actual break-in into our house while we were home. Yep. And... There's always been a conversation when we live there about what to do in matters even of self-defense if I Hmm. have to defend my family. What does God say in certain situations? Is it okay? Or is it very clear, you shall not murder, period.
0: Hmm. There's a difference in the Bible between the commandment you shall not murder and the authority to carry out justice that's given to certain spheres, like the government. Which would include the military or the police. All right, so Jesus said you should turn the other cheek. Remember that? I think it's Matthew chapter 5. Like, don't get revenge on people. Doesn't matter if someone strikes you on the right cheek, you don't get to punch them back. So he taught a personal message of forgiveness and mercy and patience in Matthew 5. But when we look at passages that talk about the government, like Romans 13, um, I think 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says that God has given the government, quote, the sword so that people who break the law are afraid. So a parent's job, a police officer's job, the government's job is that if you want to break these laws, you should be afraid. We will make it hurt. We will fine you. We'll put you on a timeout. And in some cases, it might have to go to the point of to keep you from breaking the law, we might even have to take your life. So in Romans 13, It talks about the sword, and you didn't use the sword to slap someone in the back of the wrist. You use the sword to kill someone. So is there a time when a police officer to save lives will have to take a life? Yes. Is there a time when a government, if, you know, I'm in a country that's being invaded and people are coming at me with guns, should I turn the other cheek? Nope. I should pick up my gun and shoot them first. Right? God is the God of justice, and when justice is being trampled on, God gives the government the right and responsibility to fight back. So, it's messy, it's complicated. Christians have talked about what some people call the just war theory. Like, when is it okay for us to go to war with other people? Not just to get money, land, to make things easier. But if we have to defend ourselves and the lives that God has given us, yes, the government has the right to do that. So, I know police officers from our church who's had to take someone's life. I know some of you have served in combat where that was just like a a necessity. That's not a sin, that's not wrong, In fact, you are the way that God is keeping people safe and protecting freedoms. So we can actually take a life in a military context with a clear conscience because of Romans chapter 13. This is hard. Man.
1: Well, we haven't even gotten to the hard questions yet. Oh, that's round two. Yeah. Well, Pastor Mike, we have just a ton of questions coming in yep. and way more than we have time for. So a reminder, we will go back and try and answer a lot of these as yep. we can on our, on social media. So I'm going to really try and target some of the most upvoted questions okay. we have here. So I think this one is, uh, it, it speaks very near and dear to my heart. And maybe this is more of an advice question, but our, our children are growing up in a world that, that we feel we can see is getting more and more hostile towards the faith. Mm. Um, it's hard to raise kids in our modern-day culture. So how do we teach our kids good spiritual discretion mm. as they grow up in a world that has so many temptations? Yep. Um, yeah, how do we raise our kids? Yeah. That's an easy question, I'm sure. How do we raise our kids? How it's do we sad. raise our kids yeah. in 30 seconds or less? Go.
0: Yeah, imagine if you're a first-century Christian, you're living in the city of Rome, and literally downtown Rome is like temples to Zeus and Aphrodite, temple prostitution, the butcher selling sacrificial meat that they offered to Apollo. Like, we we are not the first Christians to have challenging situations to raise our kids in, so what do you do? Uh, The Bible says in Proverbs, I think it's 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way they should go. Right, said so train them. Um, Deuteronomy 6, maybe the best passage on Christian parenting, says, don't wait until Sunday. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Talk about God when you're sitting at home, when you walk along the road, when you're in the car, when you're on the streets. Like the way to raise a kid to know the, the beauty of God and the forgiveness of God is to talk a lot about God. Um, that is so important for modern Christians to know because since like the, Mid-1900s, when this thing called youth ministry started in the church, Christian parents delegated discipleship to the professionals and they lost the best opportunity to shape their kids to love Jesus, right? Do moms and dads know this, especially you dads, that if you bring your kids to church and drop them off at the youth group but you don't talk about God at home, Do you know the statistics massively say those kids will leave their connection to the church and maybe to Jesus as soon as they're out of your home? But if a mom and a dad, I don't know what it is, especially a dad, if he's passionate about God, if he loves God, if things happen at home and he apologizes for his sins, if he loses his cool with mom and says, Jesus wasn't okay with me treating your mom that way, if he runs for forgiveness to the cross, If he prays when they're scared, like if a mom and dad do that, they will show their kids a God who is so good and compassionate and forgiving and powerful that this world won't have anything better to offer. My second piece of advice is, watch commercials and shows with your kids and then talk about them spiritually, right? You might think I'm a bad parent, so there's this show on Apple TV called Ted Lasso, uh, it, it's about soccer, so I really got into it. Ted Lasso is like this super lovable character. My wife and I watched it, and we're like, we should watch this with our kids. <laughs> so we watched it. The second Parents, has it ever happened to you that you don't realize how much swearing and sex is in a movie until you watch it with your children? Like, oh, I didn't remember that part at all. So right, I, I could choose, like, okay, I'm not going to do this. This is bad meat. I teach my kids bad things. You can judge my parenting. But I said, why not talk about This is what the world is giving my kids. Why not talk about it? Hey, kids, in this episode, like six different people were hooking up who aren't married. Seems like they love each other. Seems like it brought them closer together. Why do you think the Bible says we should wait until marriage to have sex? All right, so if I have those conversations with my kids little on, when they get into the world, they're going to have seen it, they're going to have thought about it, they're going to have talked about it with an open Bible. So I think one of the ways we train up our kids in the way they should go is just talking in those day-to-day moments. Why do people believe that? Why do you think people behave that way? Why do we try to behave differently? Why do we believe in Jesus? That's the way we train up a child, according to Proverbs 22, verse 6. Raise your hand if you think I'm a bad parent for letting my kids watch Ted Lasso. All right, that's unanimous. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of small hands went up that I couldn't see behind the chairs.
1: Here's a question that's kind of a combination of a few questions that I'm seeing here. Um, and it deals with... How many different religions, and even in the Christian faith, how many different denominations there are. Yes. How do we know, or how do we feel about the churches that maybe teach something differently? How do we know, first of all, that we're confident in our denominational teaching, and yeah. how do we relate with people of different denominations? Sure. How do we treat them? How do we address their teachings? What's, yeah. how, talk about that dynamic a little bit.
0: How many of you grew up Lutheran in this room? How many grew up Catholic? A bunch of, How many grew up in like a non-denominational church? Yeah, Baptist, Presbyterian, like Pentecostal. Um, there's all kinds of backgrounds and man, that can be so complex and overwhelming so I, I get why a lot of people ask the question. Um, I, I would say, number one, like we have to come to our own personal convictions, not just that my pastor said or my priest said or my parents believed. We actually have to grab the Bible Because 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed, to realize, like, I believe this because this is where the Bible says it. So how do you get to heaven? It's not, well, here's my truth. I believe it's through faith in Jesus, because that's what John 3.16 says. God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So I believe this, and here's the Bible passage to prove it. What do you believe baptism does for a person? I believe it saves them by the power of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, Galatians 3, verse 27. Right. So we have to have a Bible passage to back up so it's not just my mom, my dad, my pastor, or my priest. So that's where you got to start. Um, lots of people say, I don't care what different denominations say. I actually think that's a cop-out. Right? There's different teachings in the world, and you have to come to your own personal conclusion based on your own personal study. If you have time to watch Ted Lasso or The Office, you have time to read the Bible. All right? So invest your time to actually figure out what you believe about God and the faith. Which begs the secondary question, well then why do people end up in such different spots? One answer to that question is because there are some people, and actually some denominations, that believe this is the word of God and there are other churches and denominations right here in our community who believe this contains the word of God. You hear that difference? Some people say and I'm one of these people. This is the word of God. I've met other pastors, clergy members who believe this contains the word of God. So many years ago, I was uh, interviewing some pastors and priests in my community to talk about um, sexuality and Christianity. And I knew that different churches in the community taught different things. And I, you know, I studied all the Bible passages and I wondered, well, how do we come to such different conclusions on this? Some people say this is okay. Some people say this isn't Okay. Some people say, you need to repent of this. Other people say, no, you need to embrace this and accept this. Why are we so different? And uh, I remember interviewing this pastor. I'm like, hey, so here are the Bible passages that are leading me to conclusion A. But I know on your website, you don't agree with conclusion A. You agree with conclusion B. Why do you think that? And this is his quote to me. He said, well, Mike, because we know better than Moses, and we've learned more than the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago. He would never understood what we know today. And in fact, there's a Methodist minister who said, and I quote, because we know better than Jesus. Right? That was not your second cousin who hasn't been to church in a decade. That was a pastor leading a church. His belief was the Bible contains some good things, but it also contains a lot of bad things, and they need to be replaced with what we know today. So why do you have different clergy, different people, different churches, different denominations come to different conclusions? A huge thing that separates a lot of, even within Lutheranism or Methodism or Presbyterianism is, is this the word of God from cover to cover? I believe that. All scriptures God breathed, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. That's what Jesus believed. Or does it just have some nuggets of truth like real fruit juice in a high seed juice box? It contains something good, but it's not entirely something good. I think that's one of the answers to that big question.
1: So maybe a follow-up to that is if I have a question about the Bible and I approach two people who both do believe it is the Word of God cover to cover, but they come to different conclusions, am I just at liberty then to make my own conclusion? Or what do I do when I'm truly trying to seek what God is saying, but I'm confused, it's a deep question, or whatever it might be?
0: Yeah. So what I did in in grad school at seminary, uh, we had a class called Dogmatics. It was not the study of dogs. It was the study of dogma, which means doctrine or teaching. We would basically, you know, we get to the section on communion, for example, or the Holy Spirit, and there would just be like 50 pages with every single Bible passage in the whole Bible that brings up the Holy Spirit or communion or the judgment day. So, you know, maybe there's one passage where it's kind of unclear, is it saying A or is it saying B, but if you take that one passage and then you read another passage and a third passage and a fourth passage and all the passages and you put them together, it's really hard to come to some really different examples, right? So the best thing that you can do, let's say you have a question about um, salvation, who gets to heaven, who doesn't. You can literally type into a Bible search engine, I do this all the time, like BibleGateway.com, the word salvation click return the internet will do the work for you and you can read everything the scriptures have to say about the topic of salvation i think it's going to save you from personal bias from you know denominational preference it's going to get you back to actually what the word says so i think if we do those steps it's going to save us from tons of those differences distinctions and divisions and bring us together around god's word which is truth
2: thank you for that
1: are you ready now for the most upvoted question.
0: The most the upvoted question?
1: Yes. And it's not, why are you the way that you are? No, it's not that one. <laughs> no, it's this. Uh, please comment on the Chosen TV series.
0: How many of you have seen at least one episode of the Chosen? Um, I got to say I 98% adore it. The 2% is, you know, sometimes when you're making a show or a movie about Jesus, you have to take some artistic liberties. You know, what did Jesus look like? You got to pick an actor. Are you right about it? Are you not right about that? They walked to Galilee. How fast did they walk? In what formation did they? You know, you have to make decisions as a director that aren't necessarily in the Bible. So, you know, there's a bunch of that stuff where it's like, ah, did it happen that way? Did it not happen that way? You can debate and quibble. I think what I've loved about the show is how absolutely lovable Jesus himself is. My youngest daughter, one day we were watching an episode and if, we, if our family can get through an episode of The Chosen without one of us crying, is a rare occasion. And like Jesus, he's so strong when he defends the poor and the judged. He, he's so incredibly loving with people. who are, He's like this perfect combination of power and love. And we get to the end of the episode and my youngest daughter, she's got tears in her eyes, she looks at me and says, Daddy, I love Jesus so much. And I think, that's just an actor. Like, that's some dude like you and me doing his best impersonation of Jesus. And he's so, like, magnetic and attractive. And it just makes me think, what, what do you think the real Jesus is like? If you could have seen him with your own eyes, and someday you will. Like, how, man, he's going to move us all in such profound ways. And so, I love the show. I've always loved Christian media. Some of it's super cheesy, but this is so well done It gives such great context that the apostles and Jesus were actually real people who did life with real people, and yet Jesus shone so brightly that you could not not love him. So to quote uh, the worship director from our church, it's good. (laughs) Excellent.
1: Thank you for that in-detail assessment. That, that,
0: that's a raving five-star yeah. review. That's good, yeah.
1: I think what I've appreciated about the show is something that I don't think about much while reading Scripture, and that is the humanity of Jesus. Yes. Uh, early on, uh, Jesus cracks a joke about how terrible Andrew's dancing is. Yes. And someone asked him, Jesus, can you, can you fix this? And he jokes, well, there's even some things I can't even do. You know. <laughs> And my my daughter, who was ten at the time, is like, I never knew Jesus could be so funny. Yeah, you know. So we see that Jesus was a real man. Yeah. and also true God at the same time.
0: Yeah. The, take the everything life. that people are, except the sin, and that was Jesus. All right. Hebrews chapters three and four says he was fully human in every way. He was tempted. He got tired. He was exhausted. He got hungry. He crashed. You know. You make fun of your dad for falling asleep in his, in his armchair during the game. Jesus did that in a boat. Like, he was fully human. He just never, ever sinned. So let's not, like, take half a human being, like Jesus was floating around, oh, with some like Halo. Like, he was fully human in every way except for the sin. That's why people could relate to him so well.
1: Alright, here's another one of the top upvoted questions and because there are so many questions and so many good questions, um, if you want to jump back in and upvote a few more that you really feel you would like answered, um, that'll help us and guide us towards questions because there are so many good questions in here. Um, But here's, I think, a a very difficult one, but a very good one that we need to talk about and that is, how do we interact with our neighbors who identify as transgender, etc.? Or other things. So I, yep. I don't think the question is necessarily to address transgenderism or maybe homosexuality, but the question sounds like how do I talk to them? How do I interact with them? How do I treat them?
0: Yep. It's as easy as it is complicated. Right, so we have all kinds of neighbors, family members, coworkers, friends who don't believe the things that Christians believe or behave in the ways that Christians try to behave. That could be with just a buddy who's sleeping with his girlfriend. It could be someone in a same-sex relationship. It could be an atheist. It could be a Buddhist. It could be a cousin who stopped going to church a long time ago. Um, so what do we do in those situations? The, the number one most important thing is to love in really practical ways. You don't have to be standoffish in the driveway and like, well, I don't agree with your lifestyle just yet. The Bible says love people. Like, serve people. Be there for people. Invite people into your home. Have someone at your dinner table. Like, let the love of Jesus shine so, we live in such a selfish world where everyone's always rushing and doing their own thing and they got their head down on their own to-do list that if you just actually show compassion and take some of the time in your schedule to serve people, I can almost guarantee you they will notice it. And then, while you're seeing them up close, let the beauty of the Christian faith shine within you. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine so that people see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So your unbelieving friends are at your dinner table. You find out there was an accident or your, your dad's got cancer or you're really sick. But you're not afraid like they would be afraid. You're not fearful of the future because you believe in God who runs the show. You believe in a God who's forgiving, a God who's prepared a place in heaven for you. And I guarantee you in those moments, they're going to know, even if they don't say it, that there's a difference between the way they live and the way that you live. And when that moment comes that they ask about that difference, um, the Bible says, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer for those who ask you for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Right, so someone's like, aren't you afraid? Gently and respectfully say, I follow Jesus. My Jesus died to make me perfect. My Jesus rose from the dead so that death wouldn't have the last word on me. Why would I be afraid? And they're going to sit there and say, what? And then the Christian faith stops being about like Sunday schedules and rules and You know, what you can and can't do with your body or your money, it starts being as beautiful and as big and as supernatural as it's intended to be. So there's a time to get to the truth, to call people to repentance, to say, if you're going to enter the family of God, you can't just do whatever you want in the household of God. If you're going to come into the kingdom of Jesus, you don't get to be the king. That's only Jesus and he gives the commands, right? So there's going to be a time to say, hey, give up your old life to have this life with Christ. But who's going to make that exchange unless they know how life with Christ is, how beautiful, powerful, and glorious it is? So love with no strings attached. Let people see up close the difference that your faith makes. And I bet you they're going to take a step of curiosity and ask you for the hope that you have.
1: I wonder if part of this question is, what if they don't? What if they don't take a step forward into the the hope that you have? And instead, I wonder if there's a fear of they're going to, call me out as not being accepting, not loving because I don't accept them in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I could see that fear crippling some people, myself included.
0: How do we respond there? Ready for the words of Jesus? Yes, I am. So I just quoted Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. Five verses before that, same sermon, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are going to suffer, someone's going to make fun of you and it's because of Jesus, good for you. Like, if someone's going to take a, a distance from you and say you're judgmental or bigoted or whatever and it's because you love Jesus, rejoice and be glad because you just prove that you're not in this world and living this life to please people. You're here to follow God for the great things that he's done for you. So, I, you know, people ask this all the time, like, what's the perfect way I can talk to my friends so they repent of their sins and become Christians? And I would say there's a good way, <laughs> but Jesus himself did not figure out a perfect way for everyone to like him. He called people to repent and to change their ways. They couldn't be their own gods. Some people hated him so much they put him on a cross. So I would say, do the best you can And if people throw it back in your face, even if you try to be loving, run to Matthew chapter 5 and say, I am blessed in this moment. And like the apostles in the book of Acts, I'm going to rejoice and be glad that I get to suffer for the beautiful name of Jesus.
1: Rejoicing in the midst of suffering, though, is much easier said than done. And I wonder if that's, even looking through some of these other questions, when when life gets tough, and even if it's because of Jesus, Mm -hmm. you read that passage, and they say, the, the apostles they got beat up and flogged and and then they ran away happy smiling yay
0: yes uh, that's I don't feel that way pastor mike yep. the problem is we live in a like fomo yolo culture right you only live once false you actually live twice and the second time the eternal life is much 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 longer and that's what the apostles knew like it could be bad They could persecute me. They could put me to death because of my faith. (laughs) But that's like an inch on this mile-long rope of eternal happiness that I have because of Jesus. So I think the only way you can rejoice in the midst of suffering and and not to make light of suffering, the Bible has a place for that, but you can suffer with hope because you know, as bad as it gets, this is so temporary and like the pains of labor, it's going to be over and then the glory of being with God is going to begin. So I think the only way you live out your faith in a world like this without being crushed or compromising is to have that eternal view. Um, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 says, we, we might be wasting away outwardly, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day because we fix our eyes on what is unseen and what is eternal. Thank you for that. Here's a... I'm just waiting for you to go like, Yes! <laughs>
1: And like John the Baptist yet. and chosen. We're running out.
0: Of, we're running out of time. I'm, we are. This next one's gonna impress you.
1: Okay, I will. I look forward to it. I should Thank not.
0: You. I should not have made that bet before the question.
1: <laughs> this one, I think, can really apply to uh, pretty much every single person here, and that is the Bible says, "Do not worry, mm. do not be anxious." Yep. I think you could even throw anger into that mix too. A lot of things that are very emotionally driven. Yep. Is, where is that line? The moment that I have a worrying thought or an anxious thought, am I sinning before God? Mm-hmm. Or is that not where that line is? Is it more, oh, I'm fighting against that yep. thought, so I'm not sinning yet. Like, where has that become a sin
0: yep. against my God? Oh, I can't prove this biblically, but I think my best answer is it's not a sin the first time, but it is the second. Uh, Let's imagine a stunningly beautiful woman who is not wearing a lot of clothes. We're confused because it's the Wisconsin winter. She walks into church and I notice her as a guy. Like, oh, wow. Uh, Yep, there's something about me that's very interested in looking at her a little bit more. I notice her the first time. Is that a sin? I would say, no, that's the temptation. What do I do? with my second look is the question. Like, there's temptation? Nope. I want to honor my wife. I want to be faithful to Jesus. So I'm going to look away. So I think in in that case, I haven't sinned. I faced the temptation and I resisted it. I think in the same way when it comes to worry and anxiety. I mean, stuff is going to happen that makes us so worried. We're going to be confronted with temptation. The doctor says this or the boss says this or you get the email or text that claims that. Just a natural human reaction is, oh man, but then what do you do in that moment? You Just fix your eyes on the situation until you freak out and you're anxious and you can't escape it? Or to the best of your ability, do you, do you turn to God and say, God, I'm really afraid right now. Help me. I know that you're with me. I'm so grateful for that. So in uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, that's the famous passage where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. His next line is, but in everything by prayer and petition with gratitude, offer your request to God. All right, so in the context of, and I know a lot of you struggle with anxiety, it's a constant battle for you, is, man, when that comes to assault you as fast as you can, just cry out, God, help me. And just like a lot of people in this room, like not lusting after other people's difficult, it's going to be a battle for a long time. Maybe for you, worrying and anxiety is the same thing, but here's my encouragement, to, to fight, to run to God to know that it is really difficult work. That's what temptation is. It's tempting. But someday very soon when Jesus comes back, you will be rid of that temptation and finally set free. But until then, run the race, fight the good fight, and cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Yeah! <laughs> is that better? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you didn't mean it. <laughs> That's what happens when you fish for a compliment, huh? Yeah, yeah. it was pretty Yay.
1: good. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what I hear you saying is that if I am in the fight, I'm 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 good. I'm fighting, yeah. but I should be concerned if I don't have the desire to even fight, and just say it, whatever. I can't I can't stop it. So,
0: yeah, and maybe even with more compassion because I, I know and love people who struggle with worry. Like, just to to come, I mean, we worry about how much we worry, right? And we're anxious about the fact that we're anxious. And telling an anxious Christian who severely wrestles with anxiety, stop, thanks. (laughs) I think what I would want to do is maybe go away from the law a little bit of here's how you should live and just go back to the gospel and say, God's got you. I know you're worried about how that work project's going to go. God knows he's going to take care of it. I know you're freaking out about what you said and now you're wondering what people think of you. Listen, God loves you no matter what they think. I think I want to get back as soon as I could to the promises and the bigness and the beauty of God and let that calm and anxious and troubled heart.
2: Excellent. Thank you for
1: that. Yeah. Um, Pastor Michael is helping me sort through some of these questions and he said that there are a number of questions about communion. Yes. Um, So I'm going to kind of focus on one that's, that's right here is um, when we receive communion, um, Jesus said, it's for the forgiveness of sins and to do this in remembrance of me. Yep. So their question is, by taking communion, is there an actual forgiveness of sins happening? Or is it just to remind us that Jesus did forgive our sins at the cross? Which one is happening in communion?
0: Take and eat. This is Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. Take and eat, take and drink for the forgiveness of your sins. So often the word for in the New Testament is the the Greek word that means with the goal of. I'm doing this for forgiveness, with the goal of forgiveness. So I would say in a very real way, Jesus promised, God gives us this promise in communion, and he's given it for the forgiveness of our sins, which would make some people ask, but aren't we already forgiven? Like the Bible says, Jesus died on a cross for our forgiveness. So if he did everything at the cross, why do I need to come to communion or to come to baptism for the forgiveness of our sins? It doesn't make much sense. It actually does. Uh, how many of you have been in a romantic relationship before? Yeah, a bunch of you. Um, when you're in a romantic relationship, you know that people try to express their love for you in a whole bunch of ways because it's easy to miss the one way. All right, so if I say to my wife while well, I'm watching a soccer game on the, like, the iPad, hey, honey, I love you. She says, thank you. Uh, could you help me with dinner? I already said that I loved you. Like, Yes, now, now show me your love in a, <laughs> in a different way, right? So you plan dates and you help with dinner and you dress up and you give compliments and you speak their love language and you, you give them a background. Like there's, there's all these different things that come from the same spot. I want you to know that I care about you. I prioritize you. I'm for you and I love you. The Bible the exact same way. It could just be the Bible, no communion, no baptism where God forgives us and saves us. But as sinful people, we doubt that all the time. Is this really for me? And then you get baptized and it's not just speaking to hundreds of people. It's literally water was put on your personal head and God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was put on you. And then you come to communion and you you come up and the pastor doesn't say, take and eat. Oh, not you. You're pretty bad. No, you too. You too. Take and eat. And you can taste the bread. And you know the promise of forgiveness is personally for you, repeated week after week, month after month, and year after year. So those three things, the Bible and baptism and communion, are God's three ways, according to the scriptures, where he's saying, I love you. I love you. We're good. We're good. I forgive you. No, you, you think you're not forgiven. I know you feel that way, but I forgive you. You're saved. You're safe. You're saved. You're saved. He just overwhelms us with the gospel and the good news of his love. So that's what I would say. Does it, do we remember Jesus' forgiveness at the cross? Yes. Is it for the forgiveness of our sins in the moment?
1: Yes. So the natural follow-up question, and someone asked this too, is if that's the case, then why do we say some people shouldn't or can't come
0: to communion? Yep. Um, because the Bible says that. Um, 1 Corinthians 11. So apparently in the ancient city of Corinth, a bunch of people were like, Messing up communion really, really bad. Some people are getting drunk on the wine or eating all the bread before the third shift workers could get there for the communion celebration. And so Paul writes this huge section in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. And at one part, he says this, "...whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord." Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So the Bible also has a warning that communion is like a good medicine, but just like when you go to your doctor, they don't put all the medicine in like the lobby area and let you just pick your own. The doctor wants to talk to you, examine you, make sure this is the right thing for you. That's why in the same way, we're pretty cautious with communion. We want the the pastor to sit down with people and examine you. What do you believe about communion? Do you recognize the body and blood of Christ? Do you know what this is for? Do you know why we as a church are celebrating this? And after we have those conversations, we know, oh yeah, we are in union with what we believe. So now we're ready to be in union as we celebrate the body and blood of Christ with the bread and the wine. So I, I would say, did you know in the early church, if you wanted to join I think this is right. They called it the catechumenate. You would have to spend two to three years studying the Bible with the community before you could take communion with them. Did you know that? Years. So when we ask someone like, "Hey, would you talk to the pastor at least once?" <laughs> Some people are like, "Who are you to judge my faith?" Well, no. We're we're people who believe what First Corinthians 11 says. And like, hopefully, good spiritual doctors want to examine you, make sure you're good to go. You believe these beautiful things about communion, so you can celebrate them with us.
1: I think I heard a pastor once say, and it always stuck with me regarding communion: um, the church is not in the I'll say business. It's not business, but church is not in the business of harming souls.
0: Mm. Yep.
1: And we don't want someone's souls to be harmed by taking yep. communion. When, with the passage you referenced there. Yeah.
0: So. I was think of uh, so at the last church I was at. Some of you have heard this story. Uh, we were giving communion, and I kind of gave an announcement. Hey, if you're one of our guests here today, I can't wait to celebrate communion with you, but I'd love to talk to you first. Just hang out today, catch me after church, we'll talk, and hopefully we can celebrate this the next time around. Well, of course, sitting in the way back row was this guy, his very, very, very pregnant girlfriend, like nine months pregnant, and their two year old. And they came up to the front of the church, and because, I, I don't know, it might have been coincidence, I think because God has a sense of humor. Like, everyone who was taking communion kind of left in one big group, and then it was just the three of them and me up in the front. And they kind of kneeled down in the front of church, and I don't know if this was the right decision or not, but I thought, I'm going to give them communion, and then I'm going to talk to them afterwards, just make sure we're we're all good and on the same page. And so, you know, I give the bread to the guy, take and eat, and then the little two-year-old puts his hand up. And I was a brand-new pastor. I'm like a year in. So I just kind of wink at him and smile, and I go over to the the girlfriend, and they start looking at each other like, "Why are you skipping our kid?" And I'm thinking, because he hasn't examined himself, I'm guessing he's just doing what mom and dad are doing. So I'm like, "Take it, take and eat, take take this and eat." <laughs> and I look up, and people in the congregation are they stop singing the song and they start looking at the new pastor. What is this guy gonna do? So we get to the wine, and uh, you know, you're taking drink for the forgiveness of your sins. And the guy's holding the wine, and the girl's holding the wine. Thankfully, the little kid didn't try to grab the wine. And uh, the woman, who's really pregnant, she says to her boyfriend, Hey, is this real wine? And I'm like, yeah, take a drink.
2: And she's like, is this going to hurt me?
0: like, oh, physically... At least they're arguing with each other. He's like, just drink it. She's like, I can't, I'm pregnant. He's like, just drink it, you're embarrassing me. I can't, I'm pregnant. Fine, he says. Takes his, grabs hers, boom. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there like... Go in peace, (laughs) question mark? Now, thankfully, thankfully, afterwards, they came to, like, our Bible class where we go over all the key, the key doctrines of the Bible. We get to the communion lesson. She grew up in church. He grew up in church. They thought they knew what communion was, and I actually talked to them, and they raised their hand, and she says, Pastor, I didn't know any of this. Do you remember that one time we came to communion at your church? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, I, re- <laughs> I remember that very well. So that might be an extreme example, but that really taught me early in ministry. a lot. You know, a lot of people grew up in church, they just do what mom and dad do. But have they ever studied what 1 Corinthians 11 or Matthew 26 says? In, in a lot of cases, and this isn't being judgmental, they haven't. Ask them, what do you believe about communion? Why do you believe it? A lot of people can't explain it in their own words. So we want to be cautious so we don't do any harm to souls. But it's always for the good of everyone who takes it.
1: And Pastor Michael just messaged me with multiple exclamation points. Starting point class. Amen. If you want to learn more about the teachings of the Bible, about communion, he goes through all of that in starting point class yeah. to make sure that we understand what we are taking and receiving. Yeah. Communion.
0: Amen. What do you think? One to two more questions?
1: Yeah, I was thinking probably one more. We're hitting almost an hour and a half here right now. So um, here's, I think this might be a good question to end on. Um, someone asked just, we say the phrase a lot, God has a plan for my life. Mm-hmm. We know he's in control. He's watching over us. Yep. And I think what they're trying to reconcile is, yet I'm allowed to make my own decisions Mm. about my job, um, how many kids we want to have, all those sorts of things. So how do we reconcile those two knowing and trusting God's plan for us is good. He has a plan for us, but I think we all can say we've made some bad decisions too in our
0: lives. Mm. So do we ruin God's plan for our life? Oh man. Let's not end on this question because it's (laughs) Incredibly complicated. So I remember at seminary, we talked about the will of God. It was a really thick section because theologians use words like the consequential will of God and the antecedent will of God. They break this down because sometimes like you make a decision and God overrules it. So in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul says, I was going to this city and then the Holy Spirit stopped me from doing so. I go. I thought I had free will to go to city A and then the Spirit said, nope, detour, There's other times where God, who hates sin, allows people to sin, doesn't turn you into a robot who, like, I have to be nice to all the people that I meet. Like, you can make your own choice and disobey God, but then God has a way of turning that into the good of his church, uses it to refine people, bring people closer to Jesus. So, you know, God's plan, God's will for my life, it is actually incredibly complex. What we can say is this. The Bible's clear that God wants us to follow him and obey his word. The Bible's clear that when people disobey his word, like they did when they put Jesus on the cross, um, there's a, a worship song that says, God, you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. So God has a way of taking even the sins that people commit against you and using it to drive you closer to Jesus. So yeah, what's God's plan for my life? Did he want me to do that or not? Was I obeying him or not? I think we find the Bible, what's really clear, you can move here, move there, take this job, take that one, date this person, date that one. But if you follow the clear teachings of the Bible, that's how God's will is done. And that's about as much as we can say about the will of God.
1: Okay, so maybe let's end on one easier, maybe um, lighter question. Um, And that is, if I'm trying to share my faith with someone who's not religious, Mm -hmm. what book of the Bible should I start with talking through with them?
0: Luke. And why? You said it was the last question, and I answered it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Why shouldn't they start with Revelation? How about that? (laughs)
0: Let's scare them. Get into Revelation. (laughs) Now you need Jesus. Yeah, so uh, if you don't know, the the Gospel of Luke was written by a first-century medical doctor, really smart guy, who turned into like a historian of Jesus. And the very beginning of it says... That he didn't just like, hey, here's my thoughts and personal beliefs about Jesus. Luke says he did this very careful research to put together an orderly account. He interviewed eyewitnesses. So this is like the well-researched, documented, first-century biography of Jesus. And what it does is from even before Jesus' conception all the way up to his return into heaven, it just walks you through who Jesus was, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did. So if you have a friend, and actually this is a really great, way to connect with people. Some people aren't interested in organized religion or the church, but they're very curious about Jesus. And that simple invitation, like, hey, like, I know sometimes you and I talk about spiritual things. Would you ever want to, like, like, read one of the original accounts of who Jesus was? I know some pastors say he was like this. Some pastors are wrong. And some people think Jesus was like that, and people aren't always right. But would you actually read? Like, literally, it's going to take you three hours half of a Netflix season that you're about to watch. (laughs) Would you like to read with your own eyes with me and see who Jesus was? Um, There's an old uh, Christian theologian named C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard of him. He was an Oxford, I think, scholar. He was an atheist and he became a Christian. And he said, you know, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is like a lion, the best way to convince people of the power of the lion is to just let it out of the cage. Right? So you don't have to come up with some persuasive speech to convince someone to be a Christian. Like, let them see the real Jesus with their own eyes. Read this. Was he not compelling and amazing? Did he not love people who didn't deserve it? And then connecting people with that Jesus, because faith comes from hearing the message, is the best way to bring people to faith. Jonathan? Two thumbs up now. Ooh, all right. It feels like we just
1: started. I know. But we did not just start. We did not just start, no. It's time for lunch. But well, we have another opportunity.
0: Four o'clock. Four o'clock. If you want to hear another a whole new of batch questions. of questions, Jonathan and I will be back. Yes. All right. So we talked about baptism. We talked about communion. We talked about suffering. We talked about sharing our faith. We talked about unbelieving friends. We talked about the, Trinity. the truth of the word. We talked about the Trinity. Uh, that's a lot to process. Um, so here's what I want to say to you. We love at nine to two ministries to be the kind of church where you can ask questions and they don't have to wait 52 weeks. All right, so on your communication card, in your life groups, with your pastors, the reason that we are here is to help answer your spiritual and biblical questions. So even if it's your first time, you never have to be shy. We don't have all the answers, but Pastor Michael and I have studied for a long time and worked with a lot of people. You're not going to shock us, embarrass us. The questions aren't dumb or ignorant. We would love to help answer the spiritual questions that you have. So from here on out, blank check, Ask whatever questions you want, and we're going to do our best to give you biblical answers. All right, let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. Um, Honestly, if we didn't have the Bible today, what would we do? Would we guess that we're going to make it to heaven? Would we just assume that you like us or maybe assume that you don't? We're so grateful that your word is like a bright light and it shows us the clear path that we need to walk um, it's not always an easy path, God, as we repent of our sins and submit to you as King and Lord. But you've shown us it's a beautiful path because there's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's eternal life, and there's Jesus as we walk with you. Uh, I'm so grateful for the openness of everyone who's here today. Thanks for their boldness in answering, asking questions. Uh, I pray that something that I said, that Jonathan and I uh, dialogued about, is going to be helpful as we take another step in our faith. Please bless us not just on this day, but on this year. Um, God, you use moments and services and individual years in our lives to be catalysts for real-life change. And so maybe this morning is the moment when someone for the first time in their whole life takes their faith personally and seriously. Maybe this is the service where there's some dad or mom sitting here who realizes they've been delegating the discipleship of their own son or daughter. And now they're going to turn off some of those screens and open the book and teach their precious little ones about the love and salvation that's in Jesus. Maybe this is the moment, God, when you call someone to repentance and they've been living in sin and haven't been caring and you're going to snap them out of it before it's too late. Or maybe this is the time, God, when you ease the anxiety and worry of one of your precious sons or daughters. When you remind them that you're a sovereign God who works out your will for the good of your people. God, whatever you want to individually do in individual hearts, we pray that your will would be done. We're grateful for your word today. We're grateful for this church and we're grateful for the time to discuss what you say together. We pray all these things as your beloved children and we pray them all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.